This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, economist Melissa Kearney discusses her book, The Two-Parent Privilege. She argues that the decline in two-parent married households is a driving factor in many of America's economic issues. She's interviewed by American Enterprise Institute's Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility Director, Scott Winship. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Melissa. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Scott. We're here uh, to discuss your great new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Uh, uh, excellent book. Um, why don't we uh, start off just by have, tell, having you tell our viewers uh, about your professional background and interests and what led you to write the book? Sure. So uh, I am an economist. I've been on the economics faculty at the University of Maryland for 17 years now. Before that, I trained at MIT. I've long been interested in these types of issues uh, related to inequality and poverty and the economics of families and child well-being in the U.S. Uh, How I came to write this book was I've been studying these issues for 20 years, and it has become abundantly clear to me that what has happened to family structure in the U.S., the dramatic change in the way kids are being raised in the U.S. in terms of the increase in the share of kids living with only one parent, that's you know more than one in five kids in the U.S. now, more than in any other country in the world. It's become so clear to me that this is really a part of what's driving class differences in the in the U.S. It's not been good for kids' well-being and their economic trajectories. It's not been good for the single parents who are bearing the burdens by themselves. And so I come at the issue very much as an economist, thinking about resources in the household. But ultimately, I decided to write this book because it felt like the conversations we've been having, and you and I have been in many of them together, uh, about all the sorts of policy ways we could address child poverty and growing inequality and undermining, you know, undermine social mobility. They were all focused on basically everything but family structure, improving schools, shoring up the safety net, improving labor market institutions, all these things that I'm all for. But I felt like we weren't really talking about one of the key drivers, which was basically what's happened to family structure in the U.S. And so that's how we came to write the book. Yeah, uh, I'll just cite some stats from the book. Um, One in five kids today lives with a single mother, meaning no husband, uh, no spouse, no live-in partner present. Um, If you add the children of single fathers in there, that puts the share at about one in four. It looks like about two-thirds of of kids live with two married parents. They're not necessarily their biological parents. A little bit less than two-thirds of kids live with their biological parents, whether married or not. Um, Have things always uh, been like this? No, this has really been a dramatic change in the past 40 years. A lot, most of the change honestly happened in the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s. Things have stabilized somewhat in the past 10 years, but this is really a dramatic decline. So in, you know, in 1980, 
it was closer to some more than 80 percent of kids lived with married parents. And now that's down to just above 60 percent. So a dramatic drop just in 40 years. And has it occurred among uh, kind of evenly among all segments of society? No. And this is a this is a big theme running throughout my book. This is really uh, there's been what's really emerged over the past 40 years is this quite shocking and dramatic education class gap in kids' family structure. In particular, what's happened is that college-educated parents, an already advantaged group in our society, right? Parents who are already bringing in high levels of income, they've continued to get married and have their kids in, you know, raise their kids in married two-parent homes. Uh, the share of non-marital births among college-educated mothers really hasn't increased much. So there's only been a very small decline in the share of kids born to college-educated mothers living with married parents. Over these 40 years, that's dropped about six percentage points, from like 90% to 84%. What's happened is that outside the college-educated class, there's been a dramatic decline in the share of kids living with two parents. Um, the largest decline has been in the middle of the education distribution. So, you know, I'm speaking here about moms with a high school degree or some college, and they comprise now 52%. 52% of kids now have moms in that, let's call them middle education group, right? So high school grads, not the most disadvantaged, not teen moms either. Um, the share of their kids living with two parents, that's fallen 20 percentage points over this 40-year period. And interestingly, the share of kids in that sort of, you know, middle educate, high school educated mom group that's living with married parents, that fell from 80 percent to close to 60 percent. And so now the wide gap is really between college educated and everybody else. Whereas back in the 1980s, people started to call attention to the fact that among the most disadvantaged groups, teen moms, moms without a high school degree, there was a high share of single parents among single mothers among that group. Um, and now you've had a huge increase in the share of those kids living with single mothers. And the middle group has converged downward. And so we've got this real big bifurcation between college-educated moms or the kids of college-educated moms and everybody else. And, and, and that's really what I'm calling attention to in the book is this divergence in family structure is yet another way that the college-educated class is pulling away from everyone else. But, you know, I would say in a good way, the, the shame here is that more kids are finding themselves without access to two parents in the home and all of the resources that that confers. It's really striking, yeah, that that uh, having two parents, in a sense, really is a, a privilege, as your title alludes to at, at this point. Um, and, and you sort of alluded to it earlier. The U.S. is an outlier uh, in, in terms of the trends we've experienced, it sounds like. Yeah, the U.S. is an outlier. We have, you know, like you said, more than, you know, one in five kids live with just an unpartnered mom, more than one in four kids live with an unpartnered parent, if we include the dads. Um, this is really just dramatically higher than the 7% average around the world. The, you know, the UK is a close second behind us. The European Union, 13% of kids live with one parent. So it's a little bit of a misconception that some people have, which is, oh, in the US, 
we're moving away from marriage, but now we're just like more European, parents are more likely to cohabit. And the fact of the matter is cohabitation rates are quite low in the U.S. among parents um, and even among a mom and her cohabiting partner or a dad and his cohabiting partner. As, as you mentioned, those are many of those are not actually the child's both biological parents. So cohabitation is it's a little it's it's largely unstable among parents. Very few cohabiting parents stay together throughout a child's childhood. The cohabiting partner is often in about 25 to 40 percent of the cases, not the child's second parent. All of this is very different than the situation with cohabitation among parents in Europe. But even with that, it's just, you know, way more kids in the U.S. live with one parent than anywhere else. Well, we can uh, talk in a moment about uh, kind of what the evidence says about this. But before we get get there, uh, why might it matter uh, whether a child grows up with with one or two parents? Um, what are what are sort of the reasons why one situation on average might be better or worse? Yeah, I, let me let me stipulate before I get into the reasons why that it is abundantly clear in the data that kids from married parent or two parent homes have better outcomes. And and also just a language thing. I keep going back and forth between married parent and two parent because as we were just saying in the US, those are really tightly linked, right? So <laughs> married parents often means you have two parents and unmarried parents typically means you don't. And so I'm, I'm using those a bit interchangeably. Um, but so in, the data is abundantly clear that kids from married parent homes do better. And then the question is, well, how much of that is just because married parents are more likely to be an advantaged group anyway, that they're more likely to be highly educated, higher income. And so, you know, obviously the first thing we want to do is compare uh, across. Let's just look at the outcomes for kids, whether they have a married or an unmarried mother. And, um, you know, let's make sure we're looking across moms that are the same education level, same age, et cetera, same race. And, and so we see these big differences in kids' outcomes, even conditional on that. And then researchers have done a lot of other more sophisticated things to try and really narrow down on the parents' marital status or the number of parents in the households. And so the evidence is pretty overwhelming. We know that kids do better. Okay, so then the question is, and, and what do I mean by do better? They're less likely to live in poverty. They're more likely to graduate high school. They're more likely to graduate college. They're more likely to have higher earnings and be married themselves in adulthood. They're less likely to get in trouble in school. They're less likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. Whole host of outcomes. So then the question is why? Um, and a big part of it, unsurprisingly, is income differences, right? And so... Uh, one of the things that a married parent or two-parent home tends to do is have a second parent in the household with earnings capacity. And so just as a matter of simple math, two parents tend to bring in more income than one parent alone. And, and if you look at the median income of you know, single mother households versus married parent households, it's about two to one, right? So uh, remember, the majority of moms work now, so it's also not surprising that a two-parent household tends to have about twice as much income. And income is really protective to kids. It affords a lot of opportunities. Uh, we, we know this, right? We, we know this. We have lots of evidence on this. So income is a big part of the story, but it's not the whole story. A second parent in the household, I mean, I see this in the data, but you and I both know this as parents. Anyone who has kids would tell you. Um, kids also take a lot of time. <laughs> and we see that kids who live in two-parent or married-parent households, they have more 
parental time. Uh, so the extent we think that parent, parental time with kids is an investment, it's an investment in their human capital. You know, development psychologists talk about the way parents spend their time with kids and in ways that foster their development and service their needs um, at different ages. We just see that kids from married parent homes are more likely to get those parental time inputs. And a third um, sort of mechanism that I think is really important and that there's evidence in favor of is we see that kids who live in married parent homes are more likely to get exposure to the type of parenting that development psychologists would say is is developmentally appropriate and nurturing and beneficial. Um, and you know, again, I want to. I I think it's really important here to say that I don't see evidence. Um, suggesting to me, some people will say this, but I, I, I sort of don't see this, the evidence in favor of this line of argument as strong at all. I don't see evidence suggesting that parents across different age groups or marital status necessarily want to parent differently or have strong, strongly different ideas about parenting or have different views about whether time with their kids or reading to their kids is more or less beneficial. There's a, a lot of survey evidence, suggestive evidence that parents you know, sort of want to do the same things, read to their kids, invest, you know, spend time with their kids. Um, but if you have two parents in the household, it's easier to do it. And so I refer to this in the book and, you know, others refer to this in the literature as as bandwidth or less stress in the household. And if, you know, if you look at theories of the family, there's nuanced differences between emotional bandwidth and toxic stress, but just colloquially speaking, we can, you know, stipulate, I think, that single parent households have higher levels of stress, less emotional bandwidth, right? Again, I'm thinking here of really compelling evidence and studies and surveys, but as parents, I think most of us would relate to this. You come home from the workday, you're stressed out, you might be stressed out about something in your head, whether you can pay a bill, et cetera, it's hard to be patient with your kid and to sit down and read with your kid. And people who have a second parent in the house to share all of those burdens with are, readily, are more readily able to do that. And so I think it's, you know, to just sort of encapsulate this, I think there's three key buckets of mechanisms we can think about as to why two-parent married parent homes deliver um, benefits and an advantageous home environment to kids. There's more income, there's more time, and there's more emotional bandwidth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was thinking as I was reading it, uh, I've you know I've sort of had shared custody uh, with a, a daughter uh, now who's uh, entering the teenage years, and uh, another factor is you know just having two sets of eyes uh, on on kids yep. rather than one set of eyes. Uh, you know, really uh, basic things like that. I think that uh, that kind of intuitively uh, seem really important. Um, so, so you would say to folks uh, who might argue that that these resources uh, that you focus on uh, aren't as important as you say that it's sort of intrinsic uh, traits of more resource parents and kids. You don't see that uh, in in the research that you've done. This is a, this is really interesting. A lot of social scientists are really reluctant to concede that it's actually married parents or having a second parent in the house. That's particularly beneficial, and I'm and and I'm not sure what I, I think this isn't doing exactly what they intend to be doing because I think the intention of a lot of social scientists who don't want to concede this 
is to not suggest, you know, people don't want to judge other people's choices, right? And so people don't want to say, oh, well, it's marriage or something else. And so then you're left with, no, it's, you know, if you reject that and you reject the preponderance of descriptive and observational studies on this because, you know, let's get into what's going on in the social science. We don't have a randomized control trial. We never will, where we randomly assign some kids to live with married parents and others not. And so once we don't have that randomized control trial, we can't perfectly nail the causal identification that this is marriage or this is having two parents as opposed to something else, right? Now, we can see that kids from married parents do better. And we can see that once we sort of account for all these other things, those gaps go away, right? So, So we can see the mechanisms through which marriage or having two parents would confer these benefits. But, but still, you know, to the extent that we make those things go away or we adjust for them and there's still some remaining gaps, people want to say, oh, it's, it's probably not the second parent. It's something unobserved about the single parent such that even if they had another contributing person in the house, their kids would still be disadvantaged. And I, not only do I not see evidence for that, I'm just not really willing to basically write off the single parents and say that, oh, gosh, even if they had all these other resources as a second person, they just can't intrinsically deliver the type of parenting that's conducive to child success the way these unobservably higher quality people are who get married, right? So leaning hard into the unobserved differences, you know, it strikes me as an odd thing to be doing and one that's not supported in the data. And I don't think, and I think in some sense is the opposite of what most of us are inclined to do, which is acknowledge the difficulty of the circumstances of single parents rather than say it's something intrinsic about them. But the other reason why, um, you know, some people are are reluctant to say, oh, well, it, it's it's the fact of being married that's really helpful. And this, I think, is, a, is an important point. Even if some of those um, single parents married or partnered with the father of those of their children, you wouldn't see the average boost that you would expect from an average marriage because that dad would not be contributing so much to the house, right? And so this is a really important point because on average, we know that, you know, basically married parents are able to confer a lot of benefits to their kid, but that doesn't tell us about what would happen in any individual case. And so it really depends on any individual case on what the second parent would bring into the house. And and so I actually, I have a you know, I, I have a, a paper with Phil Levine we wrote in 2017. It's in the um, Annual Review of Economics. And we, we write about this marriage premium for kids. And we acknowledge this underlying, you know, the economist term for this is heterogeneity. But really, it's like variation in what we would expect the marriage premium would be for kids, given three different contextual factors, how many resources the mom has by herself what the second parent would bring, and then what outcome we're talking about. And so let me be very specific if I can. So for example, if we're talking about two teenage parents, neither one of them graduated high school, neither one of them has very good job prospects, even if they were to be married, they might still struggle to be able to, let's say, get their kid through high school, right? There, There still might be a lot of resource deficits in their household. 
If we're talking about a 35-year-old mom with an MBA, if she were to have a child on her own, she probably could keep that child out of poverty, you know, could get the child through high school. Um, but because her partner is you know, descriptively, like on average, probably a highly educated male, because we know of, you know, there's a lot of assortative mating, the extra income that would be, and the extra resources that would, you know, what he would bring into that household might be enough to get the kid through college. Because we actually see, you know, it's not until you get to kids with two highly educated married parents that we have a large share of them graduating college. And so the 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 benefit to the kid from having the additional income in the household really depends on the mom's baseline, what the partner would bring, and then what outcome we're talking about. Interestingly, the largest, you know, going back to something we said earlier, the largest decrease in married parents has been in the middle group among parents with a high school education. And this is actually where the gaps in kids' outcomes outside of poverty and college seem to be largest. And and this, you know, we see this in the data, it fits our model, but it also makes intuitive sense. So think about a high school educated mom, you know, let's say she's making $35,000 a year on her own, and she has a child with a dad with a high school level education, he's making $35,000. She could probably keep the kid out of child but poverty by herself, but a, a one, you know, a household with two working parents bringing in a combined seventy thousand—that's a very different situation than a household with one parent bringing in thirty-five thousand. And that's where we see like almost the largest gaps in whether a kid graduates high school, what earnings they have in adulthood. And so I, I think it's just important to think about—you know—averages mask a lot, and um, and there's individual circumstances that would determine whether an individual situation would be beneficial for kids. But if we look at the patterns, they're very consistent with a resource framework. And to explain it away by saying it's something underlying and unobserved about the single parent, once you recognize these patterns, you have to tell pretty convoluted stories to say that it's something other than the benefits a second parent brings into the household. Yeah, I thought I thought your study uh, was was really clever. It's a it's a great example of starting with a theoretical framework and figuring out a research design that will let you see whether it's true or not, and then uh, and then taking the evidence as it comes. Um, I, I do think there's a couple other really interesting studies that that I like a lot um, that maybe get at a little bit outside of your resource framework. Um, I'll just uh, mention them really quick. One uh, was done, oh, I think in Sweden. Uh, and it looked at uh, kids of divorce where the divorce happened because their dad was in an office that was a little bit more uh, imbalanced in favor of women uh, than of men. Uh, and therefore, there was more opportunity uh, for an extramarital affair to happen. Um, and Clever so design. The... It's so terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. It's, a, it's an awful... Awful. Uh, real Come on, world. guys. Come on. Just because there's yeah, yeah, no exactly. more women around. And yeah. so, you know, for those for those kids, the study found that the effects of divorce were, were really negative, um, which you can imagine. You know, maybe these are kids who are uh, in in a marriage that, you know, as far as they know, their their parents are doing fine, and this this is sort of a big disruption and shock to what you know what was sort of a stable childhood. Um, the other study uh, that's kind of an, an an interesting opposite to that was done by. Um, Keith Finlay and David Newmark, uh, 
And they essentially find that kids who end up uh, being raised only by their mom because they live in a state where uh, conditional on their dad being convicted of a crime, uh, he goes to prison. Um, those kids end up not being worse off uh, growing up with a single mom um, uh, than if, you know, under the counterfactual, they had grown up with with their dad in the picture, too. Uh, and that makes sense, too, in yeah. some regard, if, you know, if a lot of these guys on average, you know, that went to the, that were convicted of a crime and went to prison um, might not have been the, the greatest dads as well. So I uh, that that I think goes a little bit beyond sort of your resource argument. Um, but. Yeah, no. Well, it, it goes. I try to use the term resource very broadly in the sense that I don't mean just income, right? Yeah. And and I actually think these two studies are right on point to some of the stuff I talk about in the in mm-hmm. the book. I talk about um, two different studies of parents convicted of of crime to make this point exactly what you just said, which is if the second parent would be harmful, mm-hmm. right? Then that's a situation where you know think about what. What are the re- what are the resources the parent would bring into the house? Well, in that case, it would be it would be instability, it would be conflict. These would be negative things, and that child, again, data shows like really clever studies show that um, like let's just take you know two parents are convicted of the same crime. One happens to be randomly assigned to a judge with a higher propensity to send you know someone convicted of that crime to prison two different studies have used that kind of design and find that it's beneficial to the kids um, mm. that actually helps make the point really clearly that it's not in all cases that kids would be better off and we certainly don't want to go back to a situation where we're stigmatizing single parenthood so severely that people feel like they have no choice but to leave abusive or harmful uh, marriages or partnerships and so that's a really important point I didn't know about that study about the divorce, but it's actually also, you know, really important to thinking about the marginal versus average. And like, so what is happening in those in that study where you just mentioned? Well, there the divorce, you know, seems to have been instigated by an extramarital affair as opposed to obvious conflict in the house. And one of the lines of pushback I get often is you know, this, of course, this is terrible that you're openly lamenting the decline in marriage because a lot of marriages are unhappy. Mm, And I think this raises an uncomfortable question. And this is beyond the scope of what I am an expert on or what I write about. This raises a really important question about when actually is it better for the kid, you know, and, and we've gone so far in the direction of, couples not being together that have kids together, right? I mean, 40% of kids in this country are born outside of a marital union. It's not that in 40% of those cases, the partner would be violent or abusive, right? We're so far beyond extreme cases that we have to ask the question, have we gone so far that maybe these partnerships wouldn't have been gloriously happy or, you know, the, yep. the, the parents wouldn't be phenomenally and, and ebulently in love like every day, but maybe that stability and additional resource would be beneficial to kids. And I think, you know, that's a difficult conversation to have and nobody, you know, likes to question individual freedom and choices in pursuit of happiness. Yep. And, and I would just, somebody has to be thinking about the kids Right. And and, yep, and in, sure. in some sense, like we see that kids do better when they have two parents stably together, except in these situations where it's very clearly a harmful or extreme case. And then and then the kids do better when that second parent isn't in the household. Yep. 
absolutely. I I uh, fully agree that forty percent of my uh, of my biological sex are not terrible parents. Uh, uh, open to debate how what the what the right percent. Yeah, is. right. It's probably somewhere between zero to forty, and, and there would be wide disagreement about which end it's closer to. Right. Uh, this brings us. Um, a little bit to the, this question of of men uh, and 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 of boys. Um, I think I think your book is well positioned to be maybe the most important policy book of this fall. Probably the most important policy book of last fall. Thanks, um, Scott. Was uh, absolutely yeah. It was was a book by Richard Reeves, yeah. um, who we both know and are friends with, um, called "Of Boys and Men," where he chronicles uh, the, the sort of ways that boys uh, and men are falling behind girls and women. Um, interestingly, I think he sort of skirted over uh, uh, the, the possibility that that single parenthood uh, could affect boys differently than girls. Uh, but but you uh, tackle that in a chapter of your book. Um, say more uh, about uh, the the differential impact uh, of growing up with a single mother uh, for boys and girls. Yeah, let me say I love Richard's book, and I I think he's done a really important thing here by highlighting the struggles of boys. And and he does this in a very, in, in a you know very adeptly, making sure to not lament the wonderful advances that women and girls have made, right? And but so he's right to say, hey, we've done all this. Women are doing better. They're going to college at higher rates. This is great. But hold on, and let's look at what's happening to boys. And they're getting in trouble more at school. They are now less likely to go to college than young women are graduating high school. There's all sorts of ways boys are falling behind. You're exactly right, though. I actually link this very explicitly to the fact that so many of them are growing up without dads in their house. And and I think breaking this cycle of... Um, fatherless homes is actually really a critical thing we have to do to improve the situation for boys in this country. Um, and so, again, I think this will make common, you know, will feel like common sense to most people that having a, a role model, a loving role model, a re, you know, a loving male role model in the house is probably pretty good for most boys. But we mm. see this in the data. Okay. So there's been some really compelling recent work on this. Um, let me highlight two such studies. One by Marianne Bertrand and Jessica Pond, and they have you know a lot of administrative records on kids they've pulled together. They look at kids' school performance and their home environment, controlling for neighborhood characteristics. And what they're focused on is trying to explain the gender gap. The gender gap now in schools favoring Girls, meaning that boys are much more likely to get suspended in school. Let's just start with that, right? They're more likely to go to school and lash out in ways that gets them in trouble. Um, and and by the way, like getting in trouble in school, getting suspended, those kinds of things spiral. You're less likely to finish school. You're more likely to wind up involved in the criminal justice system. So it's a meaningful metric and outcome. And what they find is the gender gap by which boys are you know, extra likely to get in trouble at school, that is larger among kids growing up in mother-only households as compared to married households. And so what does that say that says, you know, boys, they're more likely to get in trouble. There's an additional boost to the likelihood that they get in trouble as compared to girls from very similar home environments, including their sisters. So if you look at sisters and brothers, they're more likely to get in trouble than girls, extra so, if they don't have a dad in their house. 
Then the researchers go further than just documenting that really striking finding showing you know, disparate impacts of family structures on boys and girls, and they try and get into the mechanisms of what's going on. You and I, we spoke earlier in this hour about what are some of the differences in parental resources and inputs we see across households with married or, or single parents. Um, they do find that there are some differences that, you know, boys growing up in single mother homes get less time from their mom. They're more likely to get um, harsh parenting from their mom as compared to boys in two-parent homes. But the real driver is that of gender differences is that boys are particularly sensitive to this inputs. I think this is really, I found this incredibly interesting. So the way I think about this is, if, you know, I have, a, I have two daughters and a son. Um, if I ignore my son or if I'm really harsh with my son, he's, a, you know, that, that same, if I, if I sort of, you know, reduce my time spent with both my son and my daughter and more harsh with both of them, it's going to have a bigger impact on whether my son lashes out, right? Whether he gets in trouble at school. And so boys are just particularly sensitive to those inputs. I want to be careful because in, in the way that I, I don't, I think we should be very careful to not say that girls aren't struggling. But we know from like, you know, the development psychology literature, uh, we know that on average, when girls are struggling, they're more likely to internalize their unhappiness or their anxiety. The fact that boys are more likely to engage in externalizing behavior, that, that means they're more likely to get in trouble in school, and that has all sorts of negative consequences. Um, and so even though it might be more consequential in our sort of educational system and ultimately on their economic trajectory for boys, I just want to be careful to not make it sound like we're suggesting girls aren't struggling. They might just be struggling in different ways that have different consequences, but don't sort of derail their educational performance as much. Yep. Oh, sorry. The, there was a second study about white boys, about yep. boys. So this one is the aggregate level study. Um, by you know Raj Chetty and the Opportunity Insights team out of Harvard, this is at a neighborhood level, yep. um, and the study you probably know which one I'm thinking of. I'm, I'm thinking of the one that looks at racial gaps in outcomes between you know um, let's say black and white boys when they grow up into an adulthood, and the single biggest predictor of a smaller gap in adulthood between black and white boys when they're adults is the share of the share of homes with a black dad present in their neighborhood. And this is this is super interesting. This is beyond the benefits an individual child gets from having their father in the house. Having more homes, black family homes with black dads is particularly helpful for black boys in that neighborhood. And then the you know the tragedy here in a statistical sense is then they show what a small share of black boys in the U.S. are growing up in low-poverty neighborhoods with a majority of black dads in the neighborhood. But, but their study really, I think, also reveals the importance of having dads around for boys' trajectories. Yeah, and the, I think the really uh, neat thing about that study, uh, you know, a lot of studies like that, you see some correlation between something about the neighborhood and kids' outcomes, and and people say that's a causal effect. It's, it's the thing about the neighborhood that we're looking at that caused the kid to, to do better or do worse. 
And, you know, lots of times it's just not clear that that's the case. Um, in this study, the interesting thing is is that the having more uh, resident black fathers helps black boys, if I'm remembering right, not black girls and not white boys. Um, and having more white uh, fathers uh, at home doesn't help uh, black boys. Um, so it's this very specific, it seems, uh, impact um, that, uh, that that seems more plausible than sort of just a general claim about neighborhood composition that, that, that sometimes folks make. I mean, I still think it's hard. You're, you're right that the, the the if my recollection is there is, you know, having white dads is helpful, but not as helpful as the black dads, which fits with this idea that you're getting at, which is this seems like it's really tightly linked, right? Um, I mean, there's still the issue of like, you can never get around this. Again, people who really don't want to lean into dads mattering, <laughs> you know, maybe it's something else that in neighborhoods where black dads around is, you know, one of the other 20, it's not one of the other 20 things they've thought of. It's some unobservable thing we can't think of. But again, I, this is just one of those of the many studies in my mind that like, it's very, very, very suggestive. And at some point we have to stop ignoring all the suggestions and coming up with, other stories that we can't name, but are probably, you know, a bigger factor. Yep, absolutely. Um, well, in our time left, uh, I want to uh, get to policy uh, before we wrap up, but but also um, let's look at the causes uh, of this increase in single parenthood. Um, I think, first of all, many of your many of our viewers, you know, kind of might assume that this is either due to rising divorce um, or to rising teen pregnancy, uh, for instance. Um, true. No, <laughs> no. So in a very mechanical sense, what is driving this is the reduction in marriage and specifically the reduction in marriage among parents. And the way I describe it is we've experienced, again, outside the college educated class in America, a debundling of marriage from having and raising kids. Right. So this is driven by. A, an increase in the share of kids who are not born to married parents and their and their parents don't go on to get married. And so that's how we got in this situation of um, so many kids living with one parent. Divorce conditional on marriage is down. Um, and, and actually now you even see, if you just look at the share of kids living with unpartnered mothers, um, a small majority of them got there through never being married, where in 1980, that was not the case. In, in 1980, unpartnered mothers were much more likely to have gotten in that position through divorce. Now, you know, again, especially outside the college-educated class, they're more likely to have gotten in that situation by never being married. And then the other remarkable thing is teen births are way down, right? They've fallen over 70% since the mid-1990s. So if you told me in 1990 that teen births were going to plummet by as much as they did, and that births to women in their young 20s were going to fall by as much as they did, I would have predicted a decrease in the share of kids living in single-parent homes because those were the groups where we really had a concentration of single-mother homes. But births among those groups have decreased, and that's been more than offset by an increase in non-marital childbearing and single-mother homes outside of those groups, like all groups, um, and so that's really what's driving this. And I think that's really important. Again, just that doesn't get to the underlying root causes, but mechanically knowing what we're talking about is really important because making divorce harder is not really going to turn this around. 
putting more emphasis on expanded access to contraception for teenagers, that's not really going to turn it around because those aren't the driving factors. Yeah, and I, it will sort of get to root causes now, which I think will lead into uh, policy as well. So um, as you're well aware of, uh, academic debate, debates about inequality often sort of turn on three possible broad explanations. There's economics, um, there's kind of culture, uh, and there's policy. Um, you lean heavily on economics. Um, what's your argument here in the book uh, for the, for why economic changes have led to changes in the family? Yeah, I, I think it's really an interaction of economics and a shift in social norms. So let me explain. Let me explain why. So let's take a step back. We've focused on the fact that like what I'm talking about, these trends have really happened in the 80s, 90s, 2000, and they've sort of stabilized, but they're not reversing. In the 60s and 70s, we had massive social, cultural changes, um, you know, shifted emphasis on marriage and gender norms. And so during the 60s and 70s, what we saw was that marriage decreased across the board, right, for everybody a bit, college-educated, high school-educated, less than high school-educated. And then what happened in the 80s is that the decline in marriage really stabilized among the college-educated class, and and it kept falling for everybody else. And so now college-educated women are actually the most likely to be married, and college-educated mothers are by far the most likely mothers to be married. And so, um, you know, this is where I lean into economics to explain why did things keep changing outside the college-educated class? Well, what diverged in the 80s and 90s was really the economic situation between college-educated adults and everyone else. I mean, you and I have had many conversations about this. Um, in broad strokes, college-educated workers continued to do quite well in the labor market. Their earnings continued to rise steadily. Meanwhile, non-college-educated workers, we've seen employment rates over the past you know, 30 years fall among non-college-educated men. We've seen their wages stagnate, let's say. I know people debate on exactly what happened, but they, they stagnated. They fell relative to women. And so I lean into the economic view of marriage here and, and stipulate that the economic proposition of marriage for adults outside the college-educated class somewhat eroded from these changing economic circumstances where men became less reliable economic contributors and less financially important relative to what women could bring on their own. And I'm, you know, there are there are a number of studies that lead me to this conclusion that there's a causal chain there, that places that experienced reductions in employment and earnings for non-college educated men in a causal sense then saw a reduction in marriage and increase in the share of kids living in single-parent households, in places that were dominated by industries that, you know, where the national trends were such that men did less well in those places than women. We see a reduction in marriage, a rise in kids living in single-parent households. So I think there's a causal effect happening there. But then there's also a give and take with, with the social norms. So the more the social norm tying together marriage and childbearing is eroded. And then the economic worsening of the marriage proposition in those affected populations, you sort of get stuck in this spiral. And mm. now, you know, my, I think it's going to take, and this is different than what I said 10 years ago about this topic, it's going to take both economic changes and a shift in social norms 
to reverse these trends outside the non-college, outside the college-educated class. Part of what has changed my mind on this is that, you know, I was I was pretty swayed by this idea that the reduction in the marriage marriageable man from an economic framework led me to the conclusion of we really have to build up the economic security and opportunities um, and the ability to be financial providers of men in more communities, and that will sort of naturally lead to a turnaround in marriage rates and a reduction in the non-marital birth share. Then I, you know, wrote a study with my colleague Riley Wilson where we exploited this reverse marriageable men um, possibility, which is the fracking boom, which, you know, let's set aside any environmental concerns. These localized fracking booms around the country, outside of North and South Dakota, where it was like a migrant uh, situation, Throughout the rest of the country, this, these really led to localized income booms. And these were really good for local economies in a way that particularly was beneficial to non-college educated men. So we show that in places where they just happen to be located over you know, the right geology that they could take advantage of this new technology. They had this local fracking boom. Earnings and employment among non-college educated men went up, both in an absolute sense and relative to women. We run our analysis. I'm expecting to see a reduction in the non-marital birth share, and you don't get that at all. You just get that there's more kids because we actually have a bunch of evidence showing that when people get this you know, surprise shock, more income, people use some of that to have more kids because kids are expensive. They have more kids. We see the same size effect on the likelihood of having a kid among married and unmarried folks. No increase in marriage, no reduction in the non-marital birth share. So then we, because this was surprising, we, we start speculating, maybe this is about the social norms in this environment. We do see that the increase in births among non-married uh, parents is larger in places that already have more non-marital births uh, at the baseline. We look back in the 70s and 80s, what happened during a very similar coal bloom shock. There, you find only an increase in married births. You see an increase in marriage. You see a reduction in the non-marital birth share. That is suggestive to me that how people respond to their economic situations is dependent on the social paradigm. And so that's why I think it's both it's both social and economic. Yep. Great. So uh, I want to push back uh, in, in a couple areas uh, in, in terms of your causal story. Um, one, so uh, yesterday the Census Bureau released uh, new income measures. Those included measures of earnings. Um, and the median men's earnings uh, by the Census Bureau's numbers are 12% higher last year than they were in 1979. Um, so, uh, and I think your own numbers, you know, in the book show, as you said, stagnation, you know, maybe may among the uh, the lowest educated folks, small uh, decline in earnings, but certainly not, not a decline that's kind of the same magnitude as the changes in the family. Um, do we think that this, and it matters for policy, right? If we think that um, declining marriage ability is about men doing worse, uh, that's a different, calls for a different set of policies than if we think it's not that men are doing worse, but they're, but it's just women are doing much yeah. better. Um, do you have sort of thoughts on, on the difference between either of those being true? Does it affect sort of how you think about policy? Yeah, so it's, um, so two things. Remember, a lot of this, decrease in marriage, increase in non-marital childbearing really happened in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s and has stalled out. And so if, you know, if men are doing better, both in a relative absolute sense over the past 10 years, that would be consistent with the sort of, you know, a, a, a 
stopping of the bottom falling out here, right? A stopping of this downward trend. Um, it's really hard to tease out how much of this is men doing worse in an absolute first relative sense. And I, and I can't tease that out. The other thing I really can't say anything about is how much this is being driven by men versus women's decision, right? Mm. So, so we see in equilibrium, right? And what do we see yep. in the real world? There's fewer partnerships. How much of that is because the women decide that the man wouldn't contribute enough and she's better off doing this on the own or the, or the man deciding, you know what? Like, I don't want that responsibility. Right. <laughs> I don't feel secure enough. I don't want that pressure. I can't say which one is driving it. Um, you know, but, but I think it's, you know, the value proposition of marriage from both sides is reduced if men are either viewed as or themselves or view themselves as less able or willing to be financial providers. Um, and, and I don't think, you know, any improvement in men's circumstances over the past five or 10 years um, is inconsistent with this idea that this this sort of, you know, these economic changes in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s sort of got the ball, ball rolling or kept the ball rolling in this direction. You know, you didn't push back in this direction, Scott, but others would push back on me with this old-fashioned notion, including Richard Reeves, this old-fashioned notion that men have to be breadwinners. Yeah, right. Um, yes, that you will not hear me push back. Uh, okay. in that um, however, I will push back on one other regard, which you're probably anticipating. Um, I think you make a, a strong point at some point in the book that the gains to marriage for women um, depend kind of on the outside option. And so uh, since women uh, can, you know, are, are in more occupations that are higher paying these days, um, they are able to support more able to support themselves on their own. Uh, and that affects kind of how the decision to marry or not marry looks. Another thing that's changed over time um, is that the safety net has gotten quite a bit more generous, um, not so much with with cash welfare benefits, right. as you talk about uh, in the book, um, but with everything else. Um, uh, there's There's been uh, a big expansion over uh, 40, 50 years. Um, you sort of are, are dismissive of the idea that, that uh, the generosity of the safety net uh, could have played a role uh, in some of these uh, declines in marriage over time. Um, what would you say to uh, to, to those those arguments? Um, I think. Uh, well, I'll. I'll just yeah, yeah, you. yeah. So, <laughs> so I, so um, just for any viewers who aren't as seeped in this as you and I are, so it's you know I think we would both agree on the facts here of what happened to the safety net. Cash welfare has become much less generous and much harder to access, and sure. you know, and and we see that just in terms of how, what share of single moms are getting any cash benefits. It's like 6% have cash benefits from TANF, right? So we need to move away from this um, stereotype, harmful characterization from the 80s that single moms are running around relying on welfare, cash welfare, right? That's just not, that, that's just not the case. So 80% of, you know, on average, 80% of income coming into a single mother's home is from her own earnings. Okay, so 6% get TANF. Another, you know, single-digit percent gets SSI. So cash welfare is harder to access and less generate. But, you're, but, I, but to your point, um, a majority are on Medicaid. So child health insurance has become much easier to access. And food stamps, yeah. And food stamps. Yeah, 40%, I think, have food stamp income coming into the house. So my view on this is there's been dozens, hundreds of studies on what's the link between the generosity of safety net programs and family formation. 
you know, I've written some of those papers. You know, my read is there is the link in the direction we'd hypothesize, which is that as welfare is more generous, there is some small increase in the likelihood that someone is a single mom. In terms of magnitudes, you know, my read of that evidence is the magnitudes are very small. So I don't deny a link there, but the magnitudes are so small um, that they're not what's driving the trends over time, right? So, so cash welfare has certainly become much less generous, harder to access at the same time as single motherhood has become much more common. It's also become much more common among populations that are less reliant on welfare. And so that's why I reject this idea that, oh, this is all reflective of a, of a generous welfare system. Let me yeah. concede some points here to the other side, though. If we didn't have welfare reform in 96, making it harder to access uh, cash benefits, really emphasizing um, requirements for work, would we have had an even larger increase in, in single motherhood and non-marital childbearing? I think that's totally possible, right? So, so I'll, I'll grant that. Um, I am also very convinced that taking health insurance away from millions of U.S. children will not meaningfully turn around rates of marriage among parents. And so this is why, you know, I reject these calls to, well, if the safety net in the U.S. was even less generous, then sure. then we'd solve this problem, right? And so sure. even if I'm willing to grant that some people on the margin might be more inclined to have a non-marital birth or be a single mom because there's some measure of basic support out there, I don't think it's a major driver. And I don't think making the safety net more stingy is going to meaningfully turn around things. Okay, we've got uh, just a few minutes left. Uh, tell us what you think would make a difference in terms of policy uh, to either reverse the trends or, or uh, stabilize the ones that are still getting worse. Yeah, I think, you know, what I'm really hoping to accomplish with this book and what I really feel strongly about is that we need to consider this issue of class gaps in family structure, the really high share of kids in the U.S. living in one parent. We need to take this as a policy matter with policy urgency. And that's, that's actually not... Um, that's not as, you know, that's actually a pretty strong statement to be making, even if it might not sound like that, because I think the fact that uh, we've been collectively, as a group of people who talk about policy, write about policy, we've been collectively too reluctant to take on family in the policy mm -hmm. domain means that it's just gotten short shrift. And so we spend very little on programs, on research, uh, trying to figure out how to help strengthen families. And so I do think establishing this as a policy urgency is important. Once we do that, then I think we should have, you know, much more dedicated attention, public dollars, private dollars, community um, innovation in programs aimed at strengthening families. <clears throat> you know, I also think, again, this is, this is a position that many will disagree with. I think we need to reestablish a social norm, acknowledging that two-parent families are beneficial to kids. How we reestablish social norms that, you know, you get, you've moved further from things in the economist policy toolkit, but social messaging matters. What role models say matters. What leaders say matters. The messages that are just imbibed from media and entertainment mediums, they matter. Um, and then, you know, we need to get to the root causes. So, you know, social changes being among them, but also the economic root ch changes because you and I haven't rejected this idea that men and fathers should still be breadwinners. I do think mm -hmm. like 
recognizing that the challenges that have faced many men in the labor market have spilled over into the family sphere, um, leaving too many kids growing up without a dad in their home, really emphasizes the urgency of, of all of the policy things we talk about to improve the economic security of non-college educated men. Great. Uh, the book is Two Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Um, thank you very much, Melissa. This was, uh, as expected, a great conversation. Um, I, I learned a lot from reading the book, uh, and I do think it's going to do very well, uh, very well this fall. Thanks so much, Scott. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.